Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week, we will be talking about the laws of contract and tort. Uh, Today's episode covers PC1 and PC3 of the Part 3 criteria. So before we dive into the laws of contract and tort, why is legal knowledge valuable to architects in the first place? So legal knowledge is essential for architects to be able to understand the framework within which the practice of their core skills is to be carried out. So all aspects of the architect's work require a degree of knowledge of um, some legal context, whether it be uh, design, uh, securing any consents and approvals, uh, appointments, or um, when it comes to construction. So obviously, as architects, we aren't expected to be lawyers, but we are expected to carry out uh, our work properly and have enough knowledge of the relevant principles of law to protect uh, our clients from damage and loss. So if a legal situation or a question is outside of our control, we should refer to um, we should refer the client to seek legal advice rather than attempt to um, answer it ourselves if we're not sure so that we don't open ourselves up to um, any disputes or uh, liabilities later down the line. So before I expand on the law of contract and the law of tort, what do we mean by contract law as a generic term? So contract law allows parties the freedom to make their own uh, business arrangements to suit their needs and their requirements. So it is rare for contracts to contain every provision necessary. So this is where implied terms come into play And these usually occur in three situations. So the three situations are that when the implied term is necessary to make sense of the contract, when the term reflects the usual approach and hasn't been excluded, and when statute requires the implied term. So taking the usual terms as they're known, for example, that are not set out in the contract, but the parties acknowledge them as being implied, as long as the contract doesn't contain terms to the contrary. So, for example, there would be um, an implied duty that the employer under a building contract will cooperate with the contractor to allow them to carry out and complete the works. So under this implied term, the employer will be liable for breach of implied term of cooperation if they restrict the contractor from carrying out the works. So from what I mentioned earlier, if there was, for example, a clause that restricts this, then the implied term wouldn't exist. So it wouldn't apply because it's um, terminated by another clause within the contract or um, restricted by a clause in the contract. Now, looking more closely at the law of contract and law of tort, what do the two more specifically refer to? So the law of contract and the law of tort are the main bodies of rules in English law when it comes to civil obligations. So the obligation imposed in law and the obligation imposed in tort 
are conceptually different and that's why the two areas of law are dealt with separately. So they do tend to have some overlap when it comes to professional negligence, which is the most common uh, form of tort, if an architect fails to exercise reasonable skill and care in producing their design and duties then they are deemed to be in breach of contract and that they have also acted negligently. So both contract and tort law set out standards of behaviour that parties are expected to comply with. So the law of contract is more related to self-imposed obligations which are created by an agreement between uh, parties whereas the law of tort is concerned with obligations that are imposed by the law on one party due to the existence of a duty of care, not to impose any harm to the other party. So whether or not the duty of care has been agreed between the parties, the, the, the main party concerned will, be, will still be liable. So let's uh, expand on the law of contract. So starting with what makes a contract. So a contract is an agreement recognised by law as binding the parties to it. So the parties are known to be privy to the contract and the terms of the agreement are binding to those specific parties only and can't be enforced um, on anyone who is not a party to it. So the contract may be written or oral, although oral contracts are difficult to prove before a court if a dispute um, does arise. So in order for a contract to be acknowledged by a court and be able to refer to it in a dispute, it must be uh, it must be an agreement between the parties and the parties must have intended that the agreement is legally binding and consideration was passed from the party receiving the benefit of the contract in exchange for receiving the benefit. So a key action in relation to contracts in the notion of offer and acceptance in determining whether a contract has been concluded. So in essence, this means that a party has offered a service to another party and the other party accepted that offer, which was concluded within a binding contract. So for the courts, both the offer and acceptance have to be clear and unequivocal. So the courts will typically interpret a contract as the expressed intention of the parties through the words and the conditions used in that contract that they have agreed to. So now reverting back to the three situations of implied terms I mentioned earlier, some additional contract terms may be implied by statute, for example, those implied by an adjudicator if a dispute arises. But if the parties don't wish to have statutory implied terms in their contracts, um, then they can express that uh, in the contract and any conditions that refer to it can be deleted. There are limits, of course, to the amount of exclusion uh, clauses a contract may have and the courts try to protect contracting parties from unequal bargaining positions. For example, if a party in a dominant position may wish to include certain terms which exclude or limit their liability, in the event of them breaching uh, the contract. So circumstances like these may occur to architects by their clients, which seek to impose a couple of onerous terms on them, or potentially maybe by the other way around, where the architect seeks to limit or exclude their client's liability. 
So the legislation usually involved with such situations is the Unfair Contract Terms Act and the Unfair Terms in Consumer Contracts. Another potential type of contract is what is known as an informal contract, which covers letters of intent or appointment, which architects typically come across um, on a project. So letters of intent typically consist of the initial works or services to be provided to the client and the maximum sum uh, that will be paid in return for those services and the timing of those services, resulting in them becoming uh, mini contracts, pretending to be informal agreements. So a key thing to remember with this is that with these agreements um, is that they may not always amount to a legally enforceable contract. So it's important to not rely on letters of intent or letters of appointments to base an early start on the project, as there are a number of risks in proceeding without an official contract with appointment terms. So letters of intent cover a broad range of agreements between parties and cover a varying degree of formality. So for example, it can be very loose uh, and definitely not a binding contract, or it can be to the other spectrum of uh, very detailed and can be used as a binding contract. So a key thing to remember here is that the courts can use the letters as uh, a binding contract. So as architects, we need to be wary of such documents and their intent. And when we put these together, we need to have this in mind, whether we do um, intend to use it as a binding contract or document, or if we do want it to be informal, it should be written in that way. So letters of intent should typically be used when the parties find themselves genuinely unable to agree formal terms before the works or services commence, but the terms of the letter should be set to achieve what the parties wanted to achieve legally. So always think, what do I want out of this? If the letter is to be used through to completion, it should set out the party's intention for their respective rights and their obligations as they would have been set out in a formal contract. So just bear this in mind um, if you're entering into a contract like this and you don't have something formal. Now, let's move on to law of tort. So what is tort? So tort in essence means a civil legal wrong. So in tort cases, the party uh, that claims to have suffered a loss and brings a claim is known as the claimant and the party that inflicted the damage is the defendant. So the law of tort in essence seeks to recover compensation for victims of torturous behavior for their losses and is concerned with the allocation of legal liability for losses. So the damage can take many forms and it can include personal injury, physical damage to property, economic loss, damage to reputation and interference with rights in intellectual property. So one of the many categories of tort recognized by law is the tort of negligence. A negligent act or failure to do something results in breaching a legal duty of care and causes damage to a claimant. For there to be negligence, there must be a legal duty of care from the defendant not to cause damage to the claimant, a breach of the duty of care, and damage suffered by the claimant as a consequence of the defendant's breach of duty. 
So when does a party owe a duty of care? So duty of care is used by the courts to define when a party should take care not to harm the interests of another party through negligent behaviour. So duty of care is the key principle used by the courts to maintain the scope of negligent liability within acceptable limits. So it's expected that a party must take reasonable uh, care and steps to avoid any acts or omissions which a reasonable party could foresee and would be likely to cause harm to another party. So the courts have therefore identified uh, three key stages in deciding whether there is presence of a duty of care. The first one is, was the act reasonably foreseeable that the defendant's conduct would cause damage to the claimant? The second one would be, was there a relationship of proximity between the claimant and the defendant to take into consideration any actions that were carried out? And the third one would be, do the courts believe a duty was imposed on one party for the benefit of another? Now, when it comes to architecture, the architect has a legal duty of care in carrying out their work um, and therefore can be subject to breach of duty in tort. So if the architect can demonstrate that a responsible body of members of their profession would have done the same thing, they will not be deemed to have acted negligently. So generally the architect's actions are judged on the basis of the state of knowledge within the profession at the time the architect acted. So in order for there to be negligence, the claimant must establish that the defendant's breach of duty caused actual damage, such as um, physical damage to a person or a property, in order for there to be a viable claim to tort. So to prove uh, damage has occurred, the claimant must show that there is factual material connection between the defendant's action and the damage, and also show causation in law that the damage occurred um, was reasonably foreseeable uh, of the defendant's action um, because foreseeability is key in this aspect. So there are certain circumstances where pure economic loss has occurred and it can be recovered in tort if it resulted um, from a negligent misstatement. So if a person assumes responsibility to another in respect of certain services, there is no reason why they shouldn't be liable to that other person in damages in respect of any pure economic loss due to negligence resulting from those services. So recovery of pure economic loss can be made through the Defective Premises Act, also known as DPA, and the Act states that any party taking on work for the provision of a dwelling owes a duty not only to the original owner, but also to every person acquiring an interest in the dwelling. For example, any subsequent owners that might buy the property from the original owner. So this duty can't be excluded by contract. And if the DPA is breached, the remedy is recovery of damages and pure economic loss. And a key point to remember here is that damages and economic loss can be recovered under the DPA, uh, but they are limited to six years from completion. So any claim after that period will not be possible. Now, when it comes to the extent of time an architect is liable for a project, 
known as uh, the limitation period. If a claim is based on a simple contract, so if it's executed under the limitation period, um, it's uh, six years running from the date when the contract was breached. The period can be extended to 12 years if the contract was executed as a deed. So the date of breach of contract may occur before any physical damage becomes apparent. But if there is a negligent design of a building element, the breach of contract occurs when the negligent design is produced and the client will be entitled to claim for the reduction in value of the property before the physical damage becomes apparent. So if the issue doesn't become apparent until after the contractual limitation period has passed, then the client will be left with a claim in tort, which is tricky when the period passes, as the client will need to demonstrate that the architect owed them a duty of care at all. There is, however, a way to claim past the six years limitation period. So this is covered within the Limitation Act, where damage was a latent damage in that it was not discoverable before the expiry of the six-year limitation period. So this variation was introduced within the Limitation Act following the Latent Damage Act, which extends the limitation period by a further three years from the date when the claimant had the knowledge required for bringing an action for damages in respect of the relevant damage or three years from the date they could reasonably have been expected to know that they could bring such a claim. So it's vital then that architects keep accurate records of their projects for at least 15 years after completion to be able to defend themselves in case a claim rises late in that period. And it's also vital that their professional indemnity insurance is maintained for the same period um, on all relevant projects. So to quickly sum up what I discussed today, law of contract falls under civil law where there is a claimant and a defendant whereby the claimant claims a remedy for the acts or omissions of the defendant. The court may award damages under the law of contract or declare what rights the parties have in doing or refrain from doing something. And the law of tort relates to conduct which causes harm to a party's personal, proprietary or financial interest. And it is in essence the law of wrongdoing. So its purpose is to compensate interference with personal, proprietary or non-physical interest and the law of tort provides a system of loss uh, distribution and regulates behavior within society. So differences between law of contract and tort is that the law of contract seeks to enforce promises and contractual duties are agreed by the parties themselves, whereas the law of tort has duties imposed automatically by the general law. So law of contract is from one person to another only, um, whereas law of tort is to persons in general. So an architect will be liable in negligence for loss, which is a direct result of physical damage to a person or property, if it can be demonstrated that breach of duty of care has occurred. An architect will likely owe their client the same duty in negligence when it comes to pure economic loss.
uh, and an architect may be liable for negligence for pure economic loss caused to third parties by negligent misstatements if there is an assumption of responsibility. And finally, foreseeability is key when it comes to harm, which applies to the tort of negligence in duty of care, breach and damages. So this is quite an expansive subject. So I would definitely advise, um, if you can, to uh, maybe read up a bit more on these subjects. Um, So I'll provide my resources on where you can read up more on these two laws um, in the episode notes. Uh, And let me know if you um, have any questions on the subject. And that concludes today's episode. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more part three with me time.